Just a quick word from our sponsor, Post Investment Group. Have you ever considered real estate investment but aren't sure where to begin? Also, maybe you don't want to own an entire property but want to put some money towards real estate. If so, syndications with Post Investment Group may be the right fit where a bunch of people come together to pitch in to make an investment affordable for everyone. On top of that, what I really love about Post is their focus on affordable housing. And we all know in medicine how much housing can be such a big player in someone's health. So government subsidized units, Section 8, Section 42, and then also workforce housing or middle income. Think essential workers, but they cannot necessarily afford the high rent in today's economic times. It really creates a win-win situation, both for your financial future, as well as helping others in need of affordable housing. If this piques your interest at all, schedule a call with Adam Krasakis from Post, who can give you personalized guidance without any strings attached. I am constantly on the phone answering questions, helping you understand what you're investing in, whether it's right for you. The reason I syndicate real estate investments is to give regular people the access to the benefits of investing in real estate. And I just think about that every single day because that really is true. So schedule a call, no strings attached, to learn more about real estate syndications at coreampodcast.com backslash post. Again, coreampodcast.com backslash post. Welcome to the second installment of Beyond Journal Club, a collaboration between Coream and NEJM Group. The goal of Beyond Journal Club is to take landmark clinical trials and put them into context, telling the story of how we got to where we are, what it means for our patients, and how we take care of them. Today, we're going to talk about a pretty hot topic in medicine, which has been a revolution in safe and effective obesity drugs. I'm Dr. Shreya Trivedi, an internist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. I'm Dr. Greg Katz, cardiologist at NYU. And I'm Dr. Clem Lee, former fellow and current guest editor at the New England Journal of Medicine. Today, we are talking about the SIRMOUT-1 trial, which was published in the July 22nd issue of the journal in 2022. SIRMOUT-1 asks the question, does terzepatide, a once-weekly injectable drug used for diabetes, help patients lose weight compared to placebo? This is such an important question because when you think about it, almost all of contemporary medicine revolves around treating the complications of obesity and its frequent travel partner, metabolic syndrome. I don't really think it's an exaggeration to say that. Things like heart disease, even cancer and Alzheimer's are all things that patients with obesity are at increased risk for developing. Exactly. We know the two diagnoses, obesity and metabolic syndrome, go hand in hand. And when one gets better, the other one usually does too. But unfortunately, we haven't had great treatments for either, at least until recently. That's right, Shreya. Until we develop drugs that mimic the incretin system, we basically haven't had effective medicines for weight loss. And we will get into just that today. First, we will look at a new framework for thinking about obesity. Then we'll get into the failed history of medical efforts to date. Next, we're going to simplify the incretin system by taking a detour through the world of Gila monsters. <laughs> and then we'll discuss how studying diabetic drugs through the lens of cardiac risk led us to a revolution in medical weight loss. And finally, we'll discuss the SIRMOUT-1 trial, which honestly, if I had a crystal ball, I think we may look back on in 20 years as one of the most impactful trials in all of medicine over the early 21st century. The rising numbers on obesity are less of an epidemic than they are a crisis. Almost 40% of Americans are obese, which is totally staggering because in the year 2000, no state had an obesity rate over 25%. And the problem isn't just about weight, because people with obesity have higher healthcare costs, lower self-perception of health, 
and they often experience tons of discrimination from the healthcare system. Yeah. And even though we've all heard stories of how diet and exercise help that single person lose weight, it's pretty disappointing when you look at the literature. Study after study, diet and exercise fail in the long term. And the reason that diet and exercise fail in those studies is recidivism. A lifestyle intervention really only works if it's used forever. And prior studies have shown us that long-term adherence is pretty poor. The disappointing data on long-term weight loss is the single best argument why I think the correct way to think about obesity is that it's actually an environmental disease. The contemporary environment, the way we eat, move, and live, is obesogenic. Ugh. Craig, I love that idea of thinking about obesity as an environmental disease and all the things in our society are obesogenic. Just, I think that's a very powerful to think of as a framework. It's the best way that I found to think about it. You can remove yourself from the blame game of individual responsibility, food companies, and farm subsidies, and focus on what matters. What can we do to help our patients dealing with obesity? And let's get into just that, the history of obesity treatment. Unfortunately, the history of drugs to treat obesity is a sad story. It's filled with side effects and effectiveness and really not making a dent in the problem. Yep. Lots of drugs that were proposed to help people lose weight turned out to actually be unsafe. Amphetamines, exogenous thyroid hormones, fenfluramine, ephedra, locasrin. The trade-off for weight loss in exchange for unanticipated disastrous side effects like pulmonary hypertension, increased cancer risk, and cardiac arrhythmias was just not worth it. And one of the main reasons to treat obesity is to prevent cardiovascular complications. So most of these drugs being cardiotoxic means that they were non-starters to begin with. Let's then transition to the safe medical options, which unfortunately just haven't been that effective. And just as a reference, you usually need to lose about 5% of your body weight to have an impact on metabolic parameters. So the first drug we're going to look at is Orlistat. Orlistat decreases intestinal fat absorption and leads to a weight loss of about 3% of body weight. But in exchange for that pretty unimpressive weight loss, you get nasty GI side effects like steatorrhea, bloating, and potentially even fecal incontinence. Uh, I don't think anyone wants that. At least I don't. <laughs> very um, <laughs> most relatable thing ever said. <laughs> uh, there are some other options on the market. Uh, Phentermine is an amphetamine and topiramate is a sodium channel blocker with many other mechanisms. But the data for them wasn't all that impressive. And uh, topiramate was associated with cognitive dulling and phentermine you can't use a long term. And then there was metformin, which sensitizes insulin through many different mechanisms. It had a reputation for assisting with weight loss, but most of us have probably taken care of thousands of patients on metformin. And it's pretty obvious metformin isn't really a wonder drug when it comes to weight loss. And so until a few years ago, the only truly effective option that we've had for obesity has been bariatric surgery, which is effective, but it's really underutilized partly because surgery for obesity is scary for patients, and partly because of the potential long-term complications in the form of nutrient deficiencies and other negative side effects. And because we don't have effective medical treatments, in addition to our worsening obesogenic environment, the problem of obesity continues to just grow and grow. It's not that we don't recognize a problem, it's that the treatments to date have been quite ineffective. And that's where Gila monsters and the Encritin system comes in. The story of the drugs that everyone in medicine is talking about, semaglutide with trade names like Ozempic and Wagovi, or terzepatide with a trade name of Munjaro, so the story starts in kind of an odd place, the southwestern United States in northern Mexico, where the Gila monster lives. 
I'll be honest, before researching this stuff, I had no idea what Gila monsters were. Turns out it's a venomous lizard that only eats a, a couple times a year. Wow, that is shocking, and I could never do that. Same. Um, but also, that lizard will be great at residency. Um, <laughs> and the, the, the fact that Gila monsters eat so infrequently led some investigators to think that they might have a unique way of modulating their blood sugar. Turns out they have a substance in their saliva called Exendin-4 that is an agonist for glucagon-like peptide 1, also known as GLP-1. You may have previously heard of Exenatide, which goes by the trade name of Bieta. It's the synthetic version of Exendin-4 that's been approved for diabetes treatment since 2005. But luckily for us, Exenatide isn't the end of the road for GLP-1. In order to understand this stuff, well, you need to understand something called the Incretin effect. Yeah. You can get very deep into the weeds with the physiology, but the way I remember this stuff is that the Incretin system is what tells our body that we've eaten. The two major hormones at play here are GLP-1, which is glucagon-like peptide 1, and GIP, which is glucose-dependent insulinotropic polypeptide. These hormones act all over our bodies, but I think that most experts in the field are converging around the idea that the reason these drugs lead to weight loss is because of the central effect that helps to regulate appetite. And that fits with talking to patients about these drugs who say that they're just less hungry. And I've even had some patients tell me that they didn't realize how much of their eating was emotional because they were just feeling so damn hungry all the time. Yep. Everything that Greg just described is known as the Incretin effect. So it's a sum of all the hormones that are released when a person has eaten. And the drugs that we're going to talk about for the rest of the episode mimic these hormones. We'll look to some graphics explaining this in more detail in the show notes. But let's finish the story of how these Incretin mimickers went from Gila monsters to blockbusters. Just a quick word from our sponsor. We all want to eat healthier, but let's be honest, between our busy schedule and the endless prep and cleanup, it feels kind of out of our reach. You know, we often are aiming for better nutrition, but end up compromising for quick fixes that are anything but healthy. Now, imagine a different scenario. Picture a day where you're coming home to gourmet, nutritious meals that are ready in just two minutes. With Factors, that is possible. Factors delivers delicious, chef-crafted, dietitian-approved meals right to your door, ready to heat in just two minutes, giving you over 35 weekly options to choose from, from calorie smart to protein plus to keto. And don't forget, they have 60 plus add-ons for an extra boost from breakfast to midday bites. So you're not spending all your time and money in the hospital's cafeteria. So no prep, no mess, just real mouthwatering meals tailored to fit your schedule and dietary needs. With fact, you're not just saving time, but you're elevating your meal game without the hassle of cooking. Head to factormeals.com slash coriam50. Use the code coriam50 to get 50% off. That's the code coriam50 at factormeals.com slash coriam50. Um, so before we get into weight loss, I think it's important to dial back and understand that the incretin mimetics were developed as anti-diabetic agents. The weight loss that we've seen from them really was just a happy accident. Oh, I love me a happy accident story. Like when Alexander Fleming contaminated a staff culture and found penicillin. Or when scientists were looking at sildenafil as an anti-anginal agent and then discovered its use for erectile dysfunction. Love, love, love. I love these underdog stories. So for a long time, the bar to get a diabetes drug approved was based on the glucocentric model of diabetes control. Basically, if you get the sugar down, you'll make the disease better. But that glucocentric approach to diabetes management has really been falling out of favor. 
And the reason that is, is because of trials like Accord, which have shown that lower glucose doesn't reduce cardiovascular risk. Or the big plot twist that was the tragedy of rosiglitazone, a thiazolidine dione that actually ended up increasing the risk of heart failure. Unfortunately, this was only publicized after it was FDA approved and widely prescribed. That rosiglitazone scandal is what led FDA to decide in 2008 that diabetes drugs needed to demonstrate cardiovascular safety in addition to glucose-lowering effect. And this then really brought in that cardiocentric model in the diabetes management era. And this shift to needing to demonstrate cardiovascular safety in addition to A1C reduction has been a boon to us all. And the two new classes of drugs passing muster in the cardiocentric model of diabetes care are the SGLT2 inhibitors and the incretin mimetics, which we're talking about today. The SGLT2 story is interesting in its own right, but let's see how the story of GLP-1 and GIP agonists played out. And just to lay the groundwork, there are a handful of GLP-1 and GIP agonists that you should know, and they all end with TIDE. The three most famous ones are semaglutide, also known by the brand names of Ozempic, Wagovi, or Abelsis, liraglutide, which is also known as Victoza, and terzepatide, as we mentioned earlier, also known as Munjaro. And adding to that groundwork, something to keep in mind about the incretin mimetics is that the first two, semaglutide and liraglutide, are only GLP-1 agonists, but terzepatide takes it up a notch and is both a GLP-1 and a GIP agonist. And then the trials you're going to hear about on semaglutide, liraglutide, and terzepatide are trials like LEADER or a series of trials under the SUSTAIN or SURPASS umbrella. And so let's start with SUSTAIN 6 and LEADER, which were both published in the journal in 2016. These were game-changing trials that put the GLP-1 agonists on our cardiovascular map. Semaglutide reduced heart attacks by 25%, and liraglutide even reduced all-cause mortality, which honestly seemed impossible for those of us that trained in the Accord era, that a diabetes drug would actually have a cardiovascular benefit. Yeah, totally. And then it was sustained six where we started to see the potential of semaglutide as a weight loss drug. Mm-hmm. I will mention that it wasn't a primary endpoint of any of the preceding trials. And then the surpassed trials introduced terzepatide, a once-weekly injectable dual agonist of GLP-1 and GIP, which hits the two major hormones in the incretin system. And then Surpass 2, published in the journal in 2021, was really interesting. It compared then head-to-head terzepatide and semaglutide and found that terzepatide was superior at controlling diabetes than semaglutide. Some caveats with Surpass 2 was that they used low doses of semaglutide, one milligram to be exact, so maybe it wasn't an exact apples-to-apples comparison. And the treatment groups were unblinded and they didn't really measure cardiovascular outcomes. But caveats aside... Leader, Surpass, and Sustain were all really exciting trials. And to recap, these trials showed us that the incretin mimickers like semaglutide and terzepatide are not only safe, but actually improve cardiovascular outcomes for patients with diabetes. And the weight loss signal suggested that we might have a new class of diabetes drugs designed from a biologic system to naturally help regulate glucose and appetite. That signal for weight loss was a sign of big things to come. As the trial name suggests, the step one trial was the last, well, step we need to go up before we get to the trial of today's surmount one. Thanks for the weak laugh, guys. <laughs> I'm not sure I love that pun, but I think we'll let it slide since we are trekking up to surmount one. Oh, no. Ah. 
you know what? As bad as they are, they are a good way to remember all these trials. So I think it's a win. Let's start with step one. It looked at semaglutide 2.4 milligrams weekly injection compared to placebo and found that patients lost a whopping 15% of their body weight over the course of a year compared to a humble 2% with a placebo. Yeah, and this is particularly exciting because patients in the step one trial didn't have diabetes and they weren't all that sick, but they lost a lot of weight. And the cardiovascular outcomes from Sustain 6 that we mentioned make us feel comfortable with their short-term safety. Step one was a big deal for the treatment of obesity. But in my clinical practice, patients on semaglutide often report almost every single GI side effect that you can think of. Nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, constipation. So there's definitely room here for a better tolerated drug. Okay, that is very fair. And I love that clinical point about the semaglutide side effects. And we just mentioned in the last section in the Surpass 2 data that terzepatide was better than semaglutide for diabetes. So it's not so crazy to think that terzepatide may even be better than semaglutide in terms of weight loss. And that is what brings us to the Surmount 1 trial. So Surmount 1 looked at the types of patients we see in primary care basically all the time. Middle-aged people with a mean age of 45 who aren't all that chronically ill, but who are overweight and have at least one weight-related complication. These include things like hypertension, OSA, dyslipidemia, or cardiovascular disease. And this was a pretty diverse patient group. Almost two-thirds of the patients were women with a mix of different races and ethnic groups. And I think another really important thing to note about these patients is that they had elevated fasting insulin levels, but they didn't have diabetes. That means that even if they didn't meet strict criteria for metabolic syndrome, they were insulin resistant, or as I like to think about it, even if they weren't pre-diabetic, they were pre-pre-diabetic. Let's sit with that for a bit. Greg, why do they include patients with just elevated fasting insulin? One of the early signs of insulin resistance before you develop diabetes is fasting hyperinsulinemia. And so seeing high fasting insulin levels is an important sign in the metabolic health of these patients. And it tells me that a lot of these patients are on the road to diabetes. Greg, that's such an interesting point. I really hadn't thought about the fact that a high fasting insulin was informative about metabolic health. Yeah, same. So Surmount 1 took patients with this elevated fasting insulin, randomized them to escalating doses of terzepatide versus placebo. And all these patients did receive some type of lifestyle counseling. And then they followed the patients for over a year. And what they found was pretty astounding. Patients on a 10 milligram or 15 milligram dose of weekly terzepatide lost 20% of their body weight. And the patients on the 5 milligram dose lost 15%. And this is all compared to a 3% body weight loss with placebo. And if you look at the weight loss curves for Surmount 1 and Step 1, they look similar. There's rapid weight loss at first that plateaus after a few months on the drug and then persists over a year. But the numbers in Surmount 1 were more impressive than they were in Step 1. Yeah, there was a striking dose response to Shrizepatide, which really confirmed that the drug works. About a third of the patients on 15 milligrams Shrizepatide lost over 25% of weight which is pretty astounding. Think of a 200-pound person, that's 50 pounds of weight loss. And it wasn't just weight that improved. These patients also got healthier. Waist circumference went down 10 to 15 centimeters. Systolic blood pressure dropped six points compared to placebo. LDL cholesterol, non-HDL cholesterol, triglycerides, fasting insulin, they all went down. Even body composition, also known as body fat, that improved considerably in these patients. Yeah, and more than a third of patients had prediabetes at enrollment. 
of those who had prediabetes, 95% of those reverted back to normal glycemic control on the drug. And although we can't compare directly to the semaglutide in the STEP1 trial, Surmount 1 had similar rates of drug discontinuation, around 7%, and terzepatide had less nausea, diarrhea, and vomiting than with semaglutide. Yeah, that tolerability is a pretty big deal. This is often the reasons why people are stopping their drugs, so important to keep in mind. And so to summarize, compared to the results from the STEP1 semaglutide trial, patients in the Surmount 1 trial on terzepatide lost more weight on average, and more people lost a significant amount of weight with a similar number of side effects. And even though it's not a full apples-to-apples comparison, the trial data here certainly matches my anecdotal experience with these drugs, where I've seen fewer GI side effects with terzepatide compared to semaglutide. That makes me wonder, why is it that terzepatide is both more effective and better tolerated than semaglutide? It almost seems too good to be true to have both more effectiveness and better toleration. Yeah, I agree. One possible explanation is that terzepatide hits multiple places in the incretin system. So it's going to be more effective than just an agonist for GLP-1, suggests semaglutide. I can think of this similar to the way that I think about neurohormonal blockade and heart failure or antiretroviral therapy in HIV. Attacking multiple mechanisms at once is often more effective than just hitting one mechanism particularly hard. It's almost like biology is just a bit too smart for a single-minded approach to work. Yeah, I like that analogy a lot, hitting multiple pathways at once better than just one. It makes me wonder, though, with the next generation of incretin mimickers, I hear that there's ones that hit GLP-1, GIP, and glucagon, a triple agonist. I'm curious if that's going to be even more effective than terzepatide. Yeah, it's really exciting to think about what's coming down the road, especially looking at the way that terzepatide seems to work across the board. It emphasizes that the drug might help our patients in ways that have nothing to do with their body fat percentage. Yeah, yeah. I just keep staring at that remarkable secondary endpoints table that looks at all the improvements that the terzepatide group had in essentially every marker of health that we focus on when thinking about chronic disease risk. Uh, Their lipids, blood pressure, and physical function all looked way better at the end of the trial than at the beginning, and they were all way better than the placebo group. Yeah, it makes sense, given what you said in the beginning of the episode on how obesity and metabolic syndrome are so tightly linked. Um, But it can't be all that good, right? Um, I mean, are we just going to put trisepatide in the water supply now? (laughs) Yeah. I think there are still a few unanswered questions, right? Before we wrap up, first, I'm curious, how durable is the weight loss here? So we don't know. We can't really draw definitive conclusions on long-term effect of trisepatide. And so we don't know what's going to happen five years or 10 years down the road. We do have a sense that when you come off of these drugs, you regain the weight pretty rapidly. And that's from extrapolating the semaglutide withdrawal studies to suggest that a similar thing happens with terzepatide. Okay, that's really good to know when counseling our patients. What about the other thing that I feel like a lot of patients will ask, which is, hey, what are the side effects? And then also in terms of long-term, are there any unknown side effects? We don't know what we don't know. Surmount 1 followed these patients for a little over a year, but what does that look like a decade down the road? I really don't think anybody can answer that question for us. But in all the data that we have now, the results of Surmount 1 are really promising to me as a way to help our patients who are struggling to lose weight. Yeah. And so I guess it's just one more step forward in how we treat (laughs) obesity. (laughs) Pardon the bad pun. It's all about the steps. 10,000 steps. Studies on steps forward in obesity. (laughs) I hope you're taking steps while listening. Uh, Okay, it's probably getting late while we're recording. 
I'm not sure another bad step pun is the best way to conclude our second Beyond Journal Club episode, but maybe we should end with some optimism about the way these drugs may really positively change our patients' lives. I like get kudos to all these authors. It all makes sense in the whole world of these diabetes drugs ended up being effective in weight loss. We had to first figure out how to sustain ourselves to surpass and then step into the real game changer, which was surmount. And that is a wrap for today. If you found this episode helpful, please share with your team and colleagues and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use. It really does help people find us. And if you have any feedback, please email us at hello at coreimpodcast.com. Opinions expressed are our own and do not represent the opinions of any affiliated institutions. 